Welcome everybody to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Today we are in sunny, lovely, beautiful Miami as we are all week. Um, you know, I was down here for the PBD podcast. We brought the whole family along. We have a little bit of a vacation, as much of a vacation as we'd ever do, I guess, because we're still doing our show. <laughs> still working, but yeah. that's just how we roll. Yeah, exactly. So um, we're going to be talking to, or Crystal is going to be talking to, to Ray today. Because, yeah. Uh, Tere has a new book out, which is a very interesting book that Crystal, you know, uh, dove into. And also, um, he's going to open up on other topics, too. We're going to talk some politics. All yeah, around fun. Absolutely. So the book is The Ivy League Counterfeiter. And it is a true story that is, I mean, it really, like, reads like a sort of made-for-Hollywood script. Um, but it actually is a true story about someone that Tore knew that he went to high school with who had this whole sort of perfect path laid out for him. He got a scholarship to one of the top prep schools in the country. That's where Tori met him at his high school. Then he goes on to Columbia University, this Ivy League institution. He's highly intelligent. He's charming. He's charismatic. But he discovers at Columbia this super high-end printer. His buddy works at a like print shop, and he discovers this high-end printer. And he takes a dollar bill and he copies it, and it comes out so perfectly he sort of, in the book, Tori describes him as like instantly knowing what he's going to do. And so he sort of puts aside this whole like perfect storybook path to elite status that's laid out for him and instead can't leave this life of crime. And it, it's, it, it's fascinating. Just the personal story is fascinating. Some of the like meta narratives are fascinating. And then I also want to talk to Tori about some of the things he's been observing this year. Um, he's a great sort of cultural critic and observer. So I'm curious his thoughts on like Kanye West, who he's been a long time fan of and, um, you know, has has had a lot of interest in and all the various different uh, 2022 artist scandals. So we'll deal, into, deal with all of that. Counterfeiting money is an interesting crime. Right? Yeah. It's a very unique crime. It's like, on the one hand, you're committing a, a kind of a terrible act by making fake money. Right. Because whoever you pass it on to, it's fake. Maybe people figure out it's fake and get arrested for using fake money. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but also, technically, it's nonviolent, right? But I, I have an issue with the whole nonviolent versus violent uh, breakdown in crimes anyway, because when you look at Wall Street and what they did and kicked millions of people out of their homes with these predatory loans and like, even though that's technically nonviolent, it's actually, in a sense, it's even more violent than somebody who robs a convenience store. Well, right? and, and that's the part that's interesting to me about this guy, the protagonist, whose name is Cliff. He was basically on the path to be one of those type of criminals, the type that's like officially sanctioned, you know, Wall Street type of right, criminals. Yeah. And, and he instead like, he goes in. I'll go like, one step further. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> and, um, you know, Torrey talks to a bunch of actual like counterfeiters too for the, you know, to inform the narrative. Of <laughs> I like the how there's a community of them. <laughs> yeah. There, like, have you talked to Bob? Bob's an expert at and, putting the little zeros on there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and what they say is, they view it as sort of getting one over on the system. Like they see it as this is the way they rationalize it. Yeah. But and I mean, but it also reminded me of the whole crypto boom because it's almost like the same type of crime. Like you're creating fake money. Yeah. It's just the crypto dudes had it like a, a sort of grander ambition around it ultimately. <laughs> so there were a lot there in the story. That's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's a lesson in there somewhere, right? About how, like, I think, 
probably all criminals or the overwhelming majority of criminals kind of rationalize their crimes and think it's for some higher purpose. You know what I mean? And in some cases it is. If you're stealing medicine from the pharmacy so yeah. that your kid survives, like, you know what? God bless. Yeah. Like, but, you know, there's, I think every criminal, no matter how depraved, uh, maybe a tiny percentage, kind of thinks, rationalizes, justifies, no, I'm definitely doing the right thing for reasons X, Y, and Z. Yeah, well, this guy, you know, as you read the story, the way he has to launder this cash is by basically screwing over cab drivers, small business owners, club owners. Dark. So the idea that this is, you know, getting one over on the system or that this is a victimless crime is just not true. Okay. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about what's going on with the airlines. I know we had some personal experience with this. The <laughs> podcast I did, the PBD podcast, yeah. the main host, his flight was canceled, Ugh. leaving Colorado, and he had to, you know, like the next day or whatever. I don't think he was on Southwest, no, yeah. but um, it, his flight still was canceled. So it's not even just Southwest. Yeah. It's a majority Southwest, but it's not just Southwest. Right. Yeah, the whole airline system is fucked up. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So obviously there were these huge storms in, I mean, much of the country, but especially in the Northeast, in Buffalo. And so inevitable that there's going to be some airline chaos, especially around the holidays, et cetera. But Southwest, it turns out, was using this incredibly antiquated system and their catastrophe was so complete that still we're recording this on Thursday. They're still canceling thousands of flights every day. And they basically told these, you know, stranded traveler there with kids and old people and whatever, like, sorry, we just don't even have flights. We're, we're canceling so many flights. We just don't even really have flights for you to rebook. Baggage claim areas are overwhelmed with passenger luggage that was on the plane, went to some other destination. People are, you know, have no idea where their stuff is at this point. Southwest is unable to handle it. Yeah, I read um, the statement from the flight attendant union uh, for Southwest, and they talked about how they have been warning about how these systems need to be upgraded. And many of them, the flight attendants who, by the way, the, you know, the service worker, the people that are dealing with the tickets, the customers are like, this is not their fault. And I'm sure they're dealing with the brunt of all kinds of anger and rage, justifiable rage, but, you know, aimed ultimately at the wrong people. Flight attendants stranded all around the country. Company has no idea where they are. That's part of the reason why all these flights have had to be canceled is because they weren't able to keep track of their own crew. They have some, again, totally antiquated system where they have to like call in and report to Southwest where they ultimately are. They're dependent on the company to be able to get hotel rooms and food. And so people, you know, their own employees also stranded all over the country. So total, utter catastrophe in every single way. And oh, by the way, it's not like this isn't a company that could afford, that can't afford to make their passengers and their customers whole after this whole totally nightmarish holiday experience because they're out giving hundreds of millions of dollars in dividends to, you know, top Ugh. 1% shareholder. It's just Ugh. totally classic. Ugh. So hold on, can I interject? Yes, go ahead. So, um, so it's an antiquated old system that they mm -hmm. never updated in terms of how people like check into work and check out of work and get their hotel rooms and that, all that stuff. But also the actual booking of the flights, the keeping track of where the planes are, the whole thing that they use, like their entire back end operation basically just completely failed them in okay. the situation. Okay. And, and again, it was predictable. The workers have been warning that this was a problem that they needed to upgrade and rather than investing that money in like, you know, having a system that actually functions in a challenging circumstance, 
Instead, they gave, you know, their shareholders and so millions of dollars. Does some of this have to do with the thing that we've read previously too, which is like, they will overbook like crazy and then people show up and it's like, we don't have a plane, we don't have a pilot, we don't have anything. Possible, that part I'm not sure um, about. I haven't seen reporting on that specifically yet. And then also, uh, have you seen anything about sickness in regard to the uh, flight attendants, the pilots, because you know I read all the time about this whole triple-demic thing mm, that's floating around where people could, have yeah. RSV, croup, COVID, the flu, and... I think the biggest triggering effect was these storms that halted air travel. I mean, the Buffalo airport was shut down for days, days but yeah. you know, that whole region of the country, um, this was a massive storm and every airline was going to struggle with dealing with that. And like, that's something you expect but some weather delays are inevitable, but because you had this confluence of huge amounts of demand and customer, you know, massive amounts of customers trying to travel, some of the heaviest travel days of the entire year with the storm, when you layer on top of that a system that wasn't able to handle it, I think those were the three factors that really caused this entire catastrophe. Okay. So now tell me about Mayor Pete. So now our wonderful Department of Transportation Secretary, Mayor Pete, who, by the way, asked for this job. He wanted this job because he thought it would be very high profile and ultimately. He said, I love really, planes. Yeah, I love trains. Very and I love planes. <laughs> Yeah. It's more like a toddler type thing to say. I mean, before Mama, I get into Remember when Biden like mocked him for not knowing anything about like transportation and infrastructure when they were running against each other? Yes. And then oh, he yeah, did yeah, that yeah. whole ad yeah. where he was like, oh, Mayor Pete put some lights on a bridge. Wow. Isn't that amazing? I do remember that. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, this is your executive experience? Yeah. Bitch. <laughs> then he's like, how about we put you in charge of the entire infrastructure system at a time when we have like mass supply chain crisis? We had, you know, potential yeah. railroad strike. And now we and we've had airline chaos prior to this event. OK, so Mayor Pete is in there with no real experience or demonstrated interest in this job. And I think I also saw that he has been like on vacation during this time as well. (laughs) Well, it turns out he had just recently gone on a late show with Jimmy Corden, James Corden, whatever, and said airline travel is quote, going to get better by the holidays. We're really pressing the airlines to deliver better service. Our friend David Sirota at the lever breaking points partner. Um, he has the scoop that, uh, Republican and Democratic attorneys general have been sending letters begging Pete and the Department of Transportation to do something to hold these airlines to account. Pete will go on, you know, these cable news shows. Oh, we're getting tough and we're going to have these enforcement actions and we're going to find these airlines, whatever. So far, Pete's Department of Transportation has yet to find any U.S. airline a single dollar for unpaid refunds, flight cancellations, or systematic violations of consumer protection law, issued fewer enforcement orders in 2021 than in any year of the Trump or Obama administrations. Yeah, let me interject real quick, because I remember reading when we were having similar issues not too long ago, I I remember reading an article where people pointed out, even Obama, he was dealing with this issue of like, I think it was people waiting for really long, long amounts of time on the tarmac. Yeah. And they either threatened to find or actually find the, the airlines. And then they like whip their shit in order very quickly. Yes. So even Obama was like, you know, leading the charge better. way better than this. 
And David Dayan over at The Prospect, um, you know, who always does invaluable work, a while back, he had, they, they published a great breakdown of the specific powers Pete could use, the type of penalties they could impose. That Bernie, guy's great. I love his reporting. Yes. Yeah. Um, Bernie Sanders, I don't know if you remember yeah, this, I do. he proposed yeah. huge fines when flights are canceled and when there's delays. And instead they've done literally nothing. Pete has just, you know, made the like cable news show circuit and the late show with James Corden circuit, apparently to just like out of nowhere pledge. Oh, I'm sure things are going to ultimately get better. And here's the specifics. 38 state attorneys general wrote to congressional leaders declaring Pete's agency failed to respond and to provide appropriate recourse to thousands of consumer complaints about airlines customer service. So basically he was asleep at the switch. He's not doing anything. Not doing anything. Yeah. And again, he thought the reason he wanted this job, because they had originally proposed for him to be the head of the Office of Management and Budget, which he, a job he also has no real qualification for, but um, and ultimately actually very powerful job oh, as totally. well. He didn't want it because he didn't think it was glamorous or high profile enough for his future political ambitions. I mean, literally. And so he thought Department of Transportation, OK, we're going to pass this infrastructure package. I can fly around the country. I can go to ribbon cutting ceremonies and it'll be all just like fun and games and help to build my political profile. Instead, it turns out this position. Very important. Actually matters. Right. is really important. Needs someone who takes it seriously. And, you know, it's disgusting that the Biden administration, which is not different from other administrations, but it's disgusting that they put this dude in charge of this agency just out of sheer sort of corrupt political patronage because, you know, Pete got this chip because he dropped down to the primary at the and right time Biden, and yeah. fell in line. And so he got to name his price. And this is ultimately, you know, the American airline traveler is the one who pays. I hate these people so much. I hate, <laughs> say I hate it so much. I hate them. You know, our, my commentary. our friend uh, Irony made this point to me that I think is really well said, which is like, you know, if you looked at a developing world nation, poor country where they have these sort of like clear nepotistic political patronage where it's like the nephew or the brother ends up in charge of the like important agency, you'd see it so clearly for what it is. But that's literally the exact same thing that happened here ultimately. Oh, yeah. This dude has no business in this job whatsoever and no interest in the job, clearly. Oh, yeah. I mean, nepotism, corruption, you pay to play, like all this stuff is it's it's in our faces, but they put a little veneer of respectability over it because it's like they wear suits and ties and they're all part of the club and, mm -hmm. you know, they pretend it's like merit based. It's like, this isn't fucking merit based. Are you kidding me? Please. This guy was a this guy was the mayor of a city that has like fewer people in it than Breaking Points has employees. <laughs> Right? Like, <laughs> like, oh, wow. Congrats. You fixed a pothole. That was your big fucking accomplishment. As well, he, mayor. Didn't, he wasn't even that good of a mayor. I know. Like, the town was like revolting against him I, during his primary campaign. And like the media didn't bother to cover it outside of a few independent uh, reporters. It's all vanity. All right. What else you got for me? Okay. So, you know, I have been sort of obsessed with the story about this dude, George Santos, who just won a congressional election in New York. And he's a Republican. And it turns out he lied about like literally everything he could possibly have lied about. Okay. Everything. Yes. Like everything. <laughs> I, at this point, I would be surprised if his name is George Sanders. Right. so true. I'm not exaggerating. I would be like, well, of course, if it came out tomorrow, that his name is not George Santos. Right. Like, yeah. well, obviously. I yeah. mean, even, even so part of his pitch was like, oh, I'm this son of immigrants and I'm this, you know, gay Jewish Republican. So he's like using a lot of the sort of like identity tropes too to appeal to Republicans and then to the general electorate. 
And it turns out also the part about him being gay is kind of called into question because he was... Oh, I don't believe he's gay for a second. He was married up until... To a woman up until like two weeks before he filed for his cancer. Oh, come on. I mean, listen, who come knows, on. but... And he also said, oh, I'm not... I didn't say I was Jewish. I said I was Jew-ish. Jew like, you know, I like locks on a bagel. Like... But then they found um, literature where he said, like, I am a proud American Jew. Um, the Republican Jewish Coalition has now disowned him and said he's not welcome. Anyway, so. After your updates, I got another one for you. Okay. Go ahead. Lied about his education. He didn't actually go to college. Ugh. Lied about his business. Lied about his charity. Lied about his work experience. Lied about. He made up all these, like, anecdotes. To he said he worked at Goldman Sachs. Like, bro, that's not even a political advantage. Right. So it's like, I'm one of the assholes who ruins everything. That's me. Right, right. So that, and then you also had, he would make up these anecdotes. So, you know, that his grandparents fled the Holocaust. Not true. He's not even Jewish or related to anywhere Jewish. He got hammered on that one, by the way. That he, was one of the big ones that everybody was like, fuck you. Yeah. He lied about, he said he had four employees who were killed in the Pulse nightclub shooting. Also not true. So, I mean, he just made up absolutely He's everything. pathological. Yeah. yeah. He's pathological. Totally, totally right. pathological. What's the update, the updated one you have for Oh, him? oh, oh, okay. So, um, earlier today I saw this. George Santos once tweeted he was a, quote, biracial person and claimed to be Caucasian and black. Now, why did he do this? Because he posted a meme on social media of Obama and Michelle Obama as monkeys. Oh, so he posted. So he got pushback on meme. it. And then he's, he's like, like, oh, well, I'm actually- Bro, I can't even be racist. I'm oh like half, half white and half black. Oh, wow. And then the other one is um, so he lied about his mom dying on 9 11 for no reason. So here's a tweet from 2021 9 11 claimed my mother's life. So I'm blocking so I don't ever have to read this again. He was saying that in response to somebody. Uh, and then in the same fucking year, 2021, just like five months later, December 23rd this year marks five years I lost my best friend and mentor. Mom, will love you forever. So he didn't even tell the right story in the right year about his mom. No. Wow. No. Unbelievable. He's, again, pathological. You know, look, this is, this actually, this story exposes a weakness in, in, in my character and my disposition to the world. Because I am inclined to always take people at face value yeah. until proven otherwise. Like, I will, it, it'll be in good faith, I'll, I'll look at what you say charitably until you prove otherwise, then I'll flip and account everything. But like, maybe that's not the right way to go about it. Maybe the default assumption should be every single fucking person is totally full of shit until proven otherwise. I don't know. Because this I is so brazen. an outlier though. But this is, no, see, but that's the thing. Is he, what, even if it's like, okay, let's give a number here. Let's say 10% of people are like this guy. We have, what, 350 million people in the United States of America? Yeah. I mean, I think it's so shocking because it is such an outlier. But then there is, there are shades of this. And this gets, like, obviously the Republican, um, at the national level, Kevin McCarthy needs his vote for the speakership. And so they're very interested in being like, oh, George Santos, who? I don't know what you're talking about. And their whole strategy is then to point to Democratic instances of, embellishments oh, or lies or whatever. So for example, I don't know if these are the particular examples that they've been using because I haven't kept that close a track of what their defense is, but you could imagine them talking about like Biden making up his whole Nelson Mandela incident. Or, I mean, he is a played, like a known plagiarist from that's what got him bounced down of his first presidential campaign. Kamala Harris made up that whole like freedom story. Remember that? Yeah, one? I do. Uh, Biden also copied speeches. He plagiarized. Yeah, yeah. but there is a... Uh, 
there there is a, a level of difference between like I made up yeah, some spectrum. anecdote that I thought would benefit me on the campaign trail versus like I literally invented every detail yeah. of my entire life. But so, my flaw is I, I project. So I know that I'm always giving everybody my true self. And so I just assume like, of course, why wouldn't you be giving me your true self? Yeah. But it's like, you know, some percentage of the population is like this asshole, even if it's as low as like, let's say 0.1%. Yeah. Right. And unfortunately, I think they're disproportionately represented in like the highest echelons of society. I agree. It which is you to be like a, a shameless. To be <laughs> Honestly, the more shameless you are in our system, the further you go. Yeah. Think about how many smooth talking, charismatic, massive pieces of shit who are greedy Selfish about Sam Bankman Freed, and yeah, and they get super yeah. fucking far because they get to present this image of themselves to the world. But honestly, they're more shameless than anything, and they don't care about paying people shit who work for them yeah. and who they got to step on in order to get by. So, in a sense, again, I you know I come back to this all the time. In a sense, we live in like an anti meritocracy. Yeah, not only is it not a meritocracy, it's, it's an anti meritocracy, and certainly when it comes to like moral character, but absolutely. So there's so that's one piece of it that I find fascinating. It's just like the psychology of someone who could lie about every every facet of their life like this. But there's another piece of this with potential like serious legal implications that is still a bit of a mystery. So, you know, he, he, he apparently came into money from somewhere in the past, like two years. Yeah, because, and nobody knows where it's from. Right. Prior to this, he's working low level jobs. He was um, behind on his rent and was like struggling financially. But in this campaign, he was able to put $700,000 of supposedly his own money into the campaign. And all of the stories he's told about his business life, like none of it has added up. This company that, you know, he says he's getting the money from, that he's earning the money from, DeVolder organization. There's not much record of this thing existing or what it does or anything like that to see where this amount of cash could ultimately have come from. And this has potential real legal implications because obviously you can't take $700,000 from corporations. You can't take $700,000 from anyone directly into your campaign other than out of your own bank account. So if this money came from somewhere else, that could be a huge criminal act. So uh, Daily Beast has a little bit of reporting on this facet. And by the way, this is all now starting to be investigated by state and local authorities. So they are looking into this aspect of it. But lo and behold, they were able to find a few, like four clients of this DeVolder organization, and effectively all of them are big Republican political donors. So I'll read you um, the details here. They say the Daily Beast has confirmed four DeVolder organization clients, New York-based Tantillo Auto Group, two organizations tied to the influential Ruiz family in South Florida, another firm associated with Long Island insurance magnate James Metzger, Santos acknowledged all four of these clients on Wednesday. Members of both of those families, along with Metzger, also all happen to be Santos campaign donors, and some of them have further stakes in the Long Island political scene, including major donations to top Santos ally Representative Lee Zeldin, who just lost his bid for governor. Three members of the Tantillo family gave $44,800 to Santos' political efforts, according to the FEC. Three members of the Ruiz family, who appear on the corporation documents, have given $17,300. Metzger gave $23,700. Um, those include larger gifts to DeSantos's Victory Committee. Um, and in Metzger's case, the Santos-Nassau Victory Committee joint fundraising groups that split money between the Congressman's campaign and his leadership pack that's higher able to contribute more than the uh, lower level limits. So 
this looks very, very fishy. And they talked to someone who's like a campaign finance expert and said that this would be a very clear cut way to avoid campaign finance limits. Basically, you set up a like dummy corporation that you funnel political donations through to then pass them off as your own funds. And they were like, I'm not saying that is what happened, but this is how you would do it. And the fact that the only people that they can find associated with this thing are all basically like supporters of his campaign and big Republican givers, a lot of red flags there. Yeah, so he's a Frankenstein of political corruption effectively. I wonder if those people were also hoodwinked or if they were just like, I don't care because I know you're gonna serve my interests when you get in there, so here. I bet they were sort of hoodwinked. I think he he was a shapeshifter. I mean, he told people whatever they needed to hear to like push their particular political buttons. So when you're in front of the Republican Jewish coalition, his grandparents fled the Holocaust and he's a proud American Jew. When he's trying to get out of trouble, hot water from some like racist meme he posted, suddenly he's African-American. Like I'm sure he shapeshifted for these rich donors benefit. And then ultimately, like they probably didn't really care that much as long as he could gain power. But final point, this guy made it to Congress. What does that say about everything, about the system, about the voters? And ran two times. So they had four years to uncover this pack of lies and never did. And then, you know, the Democrat, uh, you know, Oppo research was like, this guy said something about January 6th, bro. It wasn't good, bro. Good job, guys. Stellar work. You guys really freaked it. Once again, so embarrassing. Yes, definitely. All right, guys. um, Let's go ahead and get to my interview with a longtime friend of mine, Tori. We used to co-host Cycle together back in the old MSNBC days. And uh, like I said, he's always a really interesting and thoughtful cultural critic. Has a great new book out called The Ivy League Counterfeiter. He's a best-selling author. He's also host and editor at The Grio. Let's get to it. My wonderful friend, Tori. It's lovely to see you as always. How are you? Always great to see you. Um, Congrats on the book, first of all. Thanks. I don't always read the whole book of our guests, but I did read this whole one. You're in a rarefied group. <laughs> but that's part of the thing, too, is that it's a shorter book, right? Most books that you find in the bookstore are 80,000 words. That's the minimum that the book company is usually going to impose on you. This book was 20,000 words. So it's yes. built to be finished, right? So you can like consume the entire story. And I always think like, yeah, we as writers should be making shorter and shorter books so people can finish it and feel like completed. Like I did something. I finished a book and you can tell other people, I read this entire book. It's not like (laughs) I read the first chapter. It was so interesting. It was great. Yeah. No, I usually get through like for the guests we have on, I usually get a good half of the way through and then I feel like, okay, I kind of got it or I just run out of time. But, um, you know, I think a lot of nonfiction books in particular, there probably is a lot of fat that could be like they could be cut down significantly sure. oftentimes. Sure. Your your book has the um, incredible like advantage of being both a nonfiction story, but it reads almost like it is fiction. I mean, it sure. reads like a sort of Hollywood script. So just give people a little bit of introduction without, you know, spoiling the whole storyline. But who is your main protagonist? Mm. What are the sort of outlines of the story and what drew you to this particular narrative? Well, I mean, you know, for one thing, I always admired In Cold Blood, right, by Truman Capote, which is this amazing 
true crime thriller, right? Where he's talking you through his experience of being close to a very serious criminal. And it has this novelistic flow to it, right? And it was revolutionary at its time because it was borrowing from the novel, but telling a nonfiction story. Um, mm. And it really opens the door to a lot of other things you see that that have become very important to us. Um, so, yeah, I went to high school with this guy. I mean, I've been trying in different ways to tell the story for like over 10, 15 years. Um, uh, this guy was behind me in high school. His name was Cliff Evans. He came from the streets of Chicago in high school. It, it was like this, like most of the white kids were like, wow, Cliff is really tough. Don't mess with him. But like I hung out with like the black athletes and they laughed at him the first two years. And we thought that he was kidding when he was saying how much he'd come from in Chicago. And then like just different things happened like later in his high school years where they were like, wow, he was serious. Like his brother is a bank robber and his father's a cop. And he's like really been like in some street situations. Um, so then he goes to Columbia and makes sure that everybody there knows that he's a tough guy. This is like an important part of his identity. Mm. And then at the end of his time at Columbia, he discovers a copier that's very expensive on the campus where somebody says this copier makes everything perfectly. And he says, really? And he pulls out a dollar and he puts it on the machine and it comes back perfectly. And he told me later, he immediately saw exactly what he needed to do and how he could run. He like, it was like the matrix. Like he could see the entire structure and future of the industry of the business that he would run. So he sat there that night making $10,000 and he distributed it to cabbies throughout New York and little smoke shops. And it was working and nobody is stopping him. And so then he has, all these minions who are spreading the money for him. He's got this team that's helping him like create, distribute the money in a larger sense. And he spends about six months in the summer of night in the year, in the last half of 96, 1996 spreading money. Now I talked to some real counterfeiters and they found his description of his method of counterfeiting to be absurd. Like, mm. like, you don't copy it on a copier. That's ridiculous. Like, if you are really doing this, uh, one thing that a lot of people do is they take a dollar bill because the feel of the paper is really hard to replicate. And my man did it by making copies and then giving texture to the paper by, like, putting it in a dryer or something. Right. So, With like, real counterfeiters, they'll take a, a single dollar and they'll, like... Bleach Change it. it into a $20 or $50 yes, or $100 or whatever. They'll bleach it and they'll have a print, just like people who make T-shirts. And the print will like imprint on the 20. So any counter anti-counterfeiting measure is already in the paper. They've already mm. defeated that. They turned a dollar mm. into a 20. My man was just photocopying 20s. It's insane. <laughs> um, well, so and this is, I mean, 96 is like early days of the internet too. So it's not mm -hmm. like you could like just as e easily Google how to be a great counterfeiter and just get a bunch of, like, that's what you do now, right? Like, how do I get it the right color? How do I get it the right texture? That wasn't available to Cliff at the time. No. So he's running this ring for a while, but then there's this parallel story also because his brother gets out of prison 
and his heroin addiction starts to rise up and he starts robbing banks to feed his heroin addiction. And again, perhaps because it's 1996, I don't think you could do this now. He walks in and out of five banks with like a thousand, two thousand, three thousand, four thousand. He just says, give me money. And they give him money and he walks out and gets in his car and he drives away. Five mm-hmm. banks in five weeks. He robbed with no problem. The wow. sixth bank, they tackled him on the way out and the FBI took him away. And because he had threatened all these tellers that he might shoot them if they didn't give him money, he was facing like 120 years in prison. Mm. And the only way to mitigate a number like that is to cooperate. And you can't just talk about what you did. You have to talk about everything you know in the world, every criminal conspiracy you know about in the world. So... I think you can see the heartbreak to where this is going. And um, I did, it took me a lot of research and reading like a lot of legal documents to figure that out. Cause it's not really like laid out for you, but when I read mm. through all of his brother's paperwork and then all of my friend's paperwork in terms of, you know, police reports, you know, hearing transcripts and things like that. Like then you realize Oh, you got arrested, the older brother, on November 1st, 1996. And my friend got arrested November 26th, 1996. And at first I thought, wow, what a horrible... What terrible timing and coincidence. His mother, but like, what a coincidence that they both get arrested at the same time. And then there was a little Mm. voice in my head was like, maybe it wasn't a coincidence. Because that's really, really close. And my friend had sent his brother 13,000 fake dollars that he sold uh-huh. to somebody for $1,000. So then I was like, oh, wait a minute. Oh, I bet they figured out that you, oh, oh this is bad. So, but, you know, and, and I don't want to give away the whole story because it's, you know, the Ivy League counterfeiter is a really amazing sort of ride to this person's life. But he goes to prison and he comes out and he goes into a whole new criminal enterprise. I mean, you was, would think like he, he he got all these advantages in life to be able to go to right. these from the hood, to be able to go to private school, to be able to go to Columbia. And they don't throw the book at him. They only give him a year in prison. You, like this is like your third chance at life. And he's smart. And he's charismatic. And he's like a hustler. And he's always – but he goes back into crime. And uh, it's a whole other crazy chapter of his life. And is that sort of what fascinated you most about this person? I mean, this was someone you knew that you sort of grew up with and you're watching this all, you know, kind of from afar unfold over years and years. But is the part that really intrigued you the fact that this is someone who had another path that he had access to because he was an extraordinary intellect, extraordinarily charismatic, all of these incredible qualities that prep school and Ivy League institutions are recognizing in him. But he decides, I don't want that path. I want this one over here. I want the thrill of the street. I want the cred of the street. I want to be in part of this. You know, I want the money fast. I don't want to have to like build up to it over years and years. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I I have been witness to so many people at my school, at other schools who came from nothing, you know, black and get into these schools 
And it's like a life lottery ticket. And you take that and like people are telling you, like in your family, in your church community, in your like, oh, you go to Phillips Exeter, you go to Spence, like whatever. Like you have gotten a chance to like zoom to another level of life, another class, another group of opportunities for you in life than you would have had if you had stayed in sort of like the hood schooling. Right. So like, wow, like you are really like on the path. And I've seen this where people grow up to become doctors, lawyers, financiers, like whatever, like helping the world, making a lot of money, like whatever, whatever. And yet there is a small body of literature about people who had the opportunities and squandered them, you know, or, or just had that path wrecked for them. I mean, one of the books that was, essential to me when I was in high school and going through the experience was this book called Best Intentions, um, where this brother from Harlem uh, crushed it at, I believe he's at Andover. And then he got a scholarship to Stanford. And like days after graduating from high school, he was shot and killed uh, Edmund Perry by a uh, undercover cop who mm. said that Edmund was trying to mug him. And the writer, Robert Sam Anson, did an amazing job sort of just talking about the street life for this guy, how school had how private school had really transformed him as a person and all these sort of things. So I just found that whole conversation really fascinating and the opportunity to sort of like get into it with my own book, my own story in that realm um, was really, really important. Do you think that at heart he was sort of like an adrenaline junkie? Like, did he love the the thrill of the potential of getting caught and living on the edge and the sort of like straight and narrow path was just going to be too boring for him? I think that's definitely part of it. That sense of freedom, of power, of of autonomy that people who work and succeed in the street seem to have. They don't have to go to work and deal with the sacrifices of some boss beating you down and the clock and all these sort of things like these guys seem to be making a lot of money on their own time never sacrifice their masculinity like never like bow to a white man like mm. and yet of course we know eventually they do nobody survives the game but he talked about having seen those sort of people as a young person and being very inspired by them and Somebody, his brother was super important to him as well. I think he looked up to his brother, even though he saw his brother do a long prison bid, he still looked up to him as this amazing uh, person. Um, and he, uh, he tried to be like his brother, even though he had opportunities that his brother had never had. And how much of it was like, because you talk about the way he, he almost sort of tried to craft this tough guy identity for himself when he was in school with you that, you know, you and others weren't buying, but a lot of the white kids in the school were fully buying. And then as he grows up and he's at Columbia, he's sort of becoming this image that he had crafted for himself. Like how much of it was it about fulfilling the image that he had created or that he wanted to create? It's an interesting question because, you know, when, when people from high school heard about the counterfeiting scheme, we were surprised. We knew that he had dabbled in the street life, but like 
how much was he really a part of it? His Columbia community was not surprised to have seen him go down that path at all. Because mm. they recall him as somebody who was constantly scheming about something, always had a hustle going. This is a guy. Remember when we were in college, there was always some credit card companies just basically handing out credit cards to anybody who would yes. stop for two minutes and fill out a form. And, you know, I mean, these are young people who do not deserve or, you know, cannot have the responsibility to have a credit card. But, like, they want us to run up those bills. Um, it's actually kind of evil that colleges allow them to stand on their campus and give out these credit cards, right? But this brother... And I'm sure a lot of people did this scam, but probably not to the scale that he did. He would get you to, Crystal, take out a credit card, and then you go and hang out in a clear area. Like, I can, like, have as an alibi, like, I can prove to you that I was here at this time. And I'll be over here spending up your credit card. And then when we come back, we'll split up the stuff. You call the company and say your card was stolen, and you can prove it, and you didn't buy any of that stuff. And, you know, 99% of the time, the company will just, like, accept any customer saying, oh, the car was stolen. I didn't make these purchases. So Cliff and you are raking in all this stuff. But he's doing this scheme, like, 30, 40, 50 times to where it's like, are you, like, trying to make a business out of this? And he just kept doing stuff like that. He was the big uh, marijuana salesman on Columbia's campus. So, I mean, like, he was all in the life and um you know so there's they also, were they, they were not surprised. there's also something very uh meta about that particular scam which is like like you said and it might even be the case now like it should basically be illegal for these credit card companies to be preying on these college students and like oh. giving them these credit cards with huge interest rates they have no idea what they're getting into these are like 17 and 18 year olds right yeah. so but they're running the scam on the entire country at like you know mass big bank level he's running this little minor scam but you know he's sort of getting one over on the system in that instance so there's like an interesting meta narrative here too about how you know a lot of his um colleagues a lot of his fellow students at columbia probably went to wall street probably like screwed people over during the subprime mortgage crisis were probably like should be behind bars but since he decided to do the like low level scheming and frauding, right. he's the one that ends up, you know, in prison and getting the book thrown at him and I mean, ultimately losing his life. You're right that he, I mean, there is potentially a Robin Hoodish angle to screwing the credit card companies who are trying to screw all the students. And like maybe, you know, if he kept going, he would like balance that out. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, he and others talked about counterfeiting as something that felt like I am stealing from the system. They feel mm. like it's victimless and they are getting one over on the corporations and on the economy. And it's not, it's, it, it has a different moral feel to them than, you know, if you were robbing somebody or if you were selling drugs to somebody like I am, tricking these people i am getting one over on you like you know and in a way you know it is an interesting way of looking at it um 
you know, what I are mean, the, listen, the, I don't want to glorify it too much because it seems like a lot of the people he screwed over were like cabbies and like small business owners, like sure. bodega owners and whatever. So it's yeah, not like he was like sticking it to Jamie Dimon or whatever. No. But um, I do find that part of it. I do find that part of it really interesting. What is it when you talk to other professional counterfeiters about why they do what they do? Was it that same sort of sense of like getting one over on the the system of viewing this as a victimless crime? Did they use the same techniques of turning these bills over in like bodegas, clubs, places like that? That's a good question. I mean, um, people, yeah. I mean, like people, a lot of people are are spreading money through smaller businesses. They may have access to selling them to other people in the underworld. Um, my friend was unable to do that, but others talk have talked about like, you know, talking to a drug group, talk, a gang, talking to a mafia group so that when they have to pay, the part of that money is fake, right? So that there, so some of that happens. Um, but, you know, a, a lot of these people, one of the things that was really interesting is that, you know, the government doesn't really want to talk about this too much. They want the message out there that if you counterfeit, we will get you, we will find right. you, get you in. It is right. tricky to get away with it because eventually, the, I mean, you know, with, with a drug deal, both people want to be doing that deal, right? It's the rec- community that doesn't want the deal to happen, right? But, you know, with sex work, both those people want the deal. With counterfeiting, like one party like does not want to, feels robbed and they do not <laughs> want to be part of it. So, the government is trying to stop you and they want the message out there like we will find you and we will prosecute you. But they don't want it to be too loud because they don't want the world and the country to think there's lots of counterfeit money. So if they make a drug bust, mm. they're happy to like show you, look at all the pounds and the guns and the money that we took off the street. And like, you know, you and I are like, you didn't really stop anything, but like, sure, you know, go off King, but they make a big deal out of it. Right. They do the press conference and they lay out all the whatever yeah. that they seized. Yeah. With counterfeiting. They don't want to make a big deal out of it because far worse then counterfeiting would be if the average person or the average investor uh, started to think the American dollar and the American economy are not to be trusted. If faith was lost in the American economy, if people thought 5%, which some counterfeiter told me, 5% of the money is fake. If people believe that, the American economy would have a significant problem, which is far greater than any individual counterfeiter poses. So, you know, they they want you to know you're going to go away, but they don't make a big deal out of it, you know. Right, because the, they don't want to shake faith in the currency, in the fiat currency system that basically undergirds, like, the whole thing we're doing here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder how much of a nexus there is between the psychological profile of Cliff or of other people who, you know, make counterfeiting, like, their their lifestyle choice and the crypto dudes, like not the not your ordinary like crypto investor guy, but like the ones that invent some Dogecoin or whatever out of scratch, Sam Bankman Freed types. No, and I basically know. you're like, you know, they have the, all this rhetoric too about how you're sort of getting one over this on the system, and they're literally inventing a currency from scratch. It seems like there's a similar psychological nexus here. I mean, you know. 
Maybe. I'm so triggered at this point, <laughs> uh, just the very mention of the word crypto, because I thought I was doing it right. I'm like, I'm just doing Bitcoin and Ethereum. Oh, no, Torrey. No. You know, (laughs) last year, it got to a point where a lot of serious institutional investors who I listened to, like big whales, were saying, okay, the risk has flipped and now it's too risky to not be in it, to not Mm. give it a chance. And I was like, okay, well, if you have people like Kathy Wood saying, like, we have to give this a chance. There were a couple of other serious, serious people who were like, you know, we got to give this a chance. Yeah. Like, okay. And, like, back when Elon Musk was not necessarily a horrible person. And he was like, <laughs> we didn't know. We didn't know everything we know now. <laughs> well, oh, my God. Like, the flip, right? My, uh, I think it was, like, nine months ago that my lease was coming up for the car I still have. And, you know, we, I talked about it with my wife and it was like, let's get a Tesla next time. Like when yeah. and like, you know, we'll let this car like because now we have no payment on the car. So like let it go until it can't go anymore and then we'll get a Tesla. And she's like, great. Like, I love that. And she's very environmentally conscious. So that fits that value for her. And Tesla at that point, just even like nine, 10 months ago, had no negative moral value to it. And just the other day, she was like, there's no way I would be seen in a Tesla. And I'm like, <laughs> like, I mean, listen, I still needs, think but not Tesla. I, I, I personally don't have a Tesla. I do have an electric vehicle now. I have the, the Mustang Mach-E electric okay. vehicle, which I absolutely love and highly recommend if you are able to, you know, whatever the your price level is for those people out there. But um, I wouldn't like take it out on the car itself. If it's a good car, it's a good car. But Clearly, the brand we were sold of Elon as this like world historic genius no, <laughs> was definitely, definitely not was definitely not accurately portrayed. I think we can say that at this point. So the world was, you know, so anyway, last year I had acquired for me a bunch of uh, and I think I was relatively responsible in the amount that I because I, I invest more much more in the stock market than in that. But I was like, okay, you know, I, you know, I, I got to give this a chance, but I was just doing Bitcoin and Ethereum. I remember riding on the Acela and seeing this young man um, may have been like 24, 25. And he was like in his crypto account. And he was so, you could see, he, just, he felt so self-important. He felt so, smart and smug and he's like i mm. and he was like buying some coin that i'd never heard of and he could i could you know you're like glancing he shouldn't but i was and like you could see like he had like 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 you, he had he had some action like a bunch of like little coins and i was like yeah you're so stupid and now i'm like you're so stupid <laughs> so, so I, do you think but do you think for you so for you it was like there were these big financial professionals who you kind of look to and you trust and they were like, give it a shot. And so that's what you, and then other people, you know, this was a sad story. (laughs) The whole thing is a sad story in my opinion, but you know, Kim Kardashian got paid whatever um, to promote some coin or another. And you might think like, okay, come on, who's taking financial advice from Kim Kardashian. But I used to know the stats, the number of people who saw this post and who acted based on this fucking Kim Kardashian crypto whatever post that she wasn't getting paid in crypto, by the way. She was getting paid in real cash. 
is, I mean, it's, it's, it says a lot. It says a lot about our culture. At least you were looking at like people who hold themselves out at least as like financial professionals with some sort of track record. No, I I mean, you know, look, I still, I, I still generally believe in Kathy Wood. She's one of the great, maybe the greatest investor the last year has been a little rough, but over the last like four, three, four years, she's been one of the greatest investors in the world. Um, so, you know, I take what she has to say seriously, either they're not going to get every call, right. That's impossible, but you right. know, you have to, you have to, but you know, when well, it's, let me, let me ask you about this part of it though, yeah. because you, um, are, introspective and you also are sort of like you you think a lot about masculinity and about culture because these coins were really pitched to men young men and actually you know what i see on tiktok i've seen that a lot of young men are going on dates with women in their 20s like that whole dating thing and talking a lot about crypto and the girls are like Please stop. Talking. Please shut the fuck up like, about crypto. Like, I don't, like, do you really think these girls care about crypto? Like there's they're, they're all like I am mind numbingly bored when he starts talking about apparently this is, a, this is a lot, a lot. But you, what do you but what do you think it is about? And actually, at the uh, especially in the later stages of the crypto boom, it was marketed directly at young black men. Because the pitch was like, the system is screwing you, you've been disenfranchised. And there was some indication that people that got in on the like later end of the curve were disproportionately black and brown, which those are the people that then got fucked over the most. And of course, another right cruel twist of fate. But what do you think it is about that pitch that worked really well for so many men? What did it speak to that they were like looking for? We said you can get rich quickly it seemed to be an investment vehicle that was moving much more quickly and it was on the early edge of the it 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 sold itself as being on still in the early edge of its history right um fortune favors the brave as matt damon now infamously told us all yeah and like you know i mean they did a good job of posting a lot of stories in different places about bitcoin millionaires Mm -hmm. and people who had invested the right time and now they had a ton and you see like tons of commercials that were mocking that notion and so then you're like is that like Madison Avenue being like, obviously this is like a big scam or is it like, you know, this is the middle of the country that doesn't yet understand. I don't know. I saw through NFTs from Mm. a one and was always like, that's bullshit. I'm not participating in that in any way. Excuse me. (laughs) um, um, But for me, me, that was actually kind of a turning point because I was kind of, um, you know, I was like open minded about it. Like, oh, maybe I just don't really get it. You know, maybe there's under people that like Bitcoin enthusiasts, they always talk about the blockchain and like underlying technology is really important, whatever. And I hadn't really dug into it. I'm like, okay, maybe, you know. And the rhetoric about after the crash and you can't trust the established financial institutions, obviously, I'm very, you know, I believe that and I'm primed to hear that message, but so I was sort of agnostic. And then NFTs for me was when I sort of saw through the whole thing and was like, oh, this is all just fraud. <laughs> basically, this is like just all basically a scam. Yeah, um, because, 
Because ultimately the NFTs are not really, I know you've like the idea that you can just screenshot these things made them extra, super ridiculous, but it's all just built on nothing. Basically it's built on any, like you could start your own cryptocurrency today and try to convince people it's worth something. And if enough people believe, and so it ends up just being this greater fool kind of a a dynamic. The, The NFTs I saw, well, I always thought there's no value. There's no inherent value, which is what Warren Buffett kept saying through the whole thing. There's no inherent value to this at all. What are you doing? Um, and, you know, I listen to Warren Buffett a lot. I listen to Charlie Munger a lot. This is one place where I was like, maybe they're a little late because Kathy Wood was like, no, I'm into it now. But, you know, but people kept saying, well, what we are in a two dimensional era of the Web, Right. And Mm -hmm. in the future, there will be a three-dimensional era of the web where I would seem to come into your home if I'm social media-ing with you or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So then people will want to have paintings and different things in their online digital home. Whatever, yeah. Right, And, and I was like, and people told me that, actually, I know this too, that... All the major brands, Gucci, Nike, whatever, are designing digital versions of clothes that you can purchase for your 3D, Web 3.0, whatever, avatar, right? So, but, and I was like, really? I mean, like, I know they're doing that, but like, really, that's going to be a thing? But somebody said, I remember this stuck with me, at some point in the future, we will have like drones and different machines from one company, right? Needing to, let's say, get gas from another company. And how are they going to, how is the Amazon drone going to pay the shell charging station or whatever? Mm-hmm. It will use Bitcoin, right? Cause that's an mm-hmm. easy way for them, for the machine. And I was like, wow, like when you're at that stage of Bitcoin, that could be like really valuable or Ethereum. That could be really valuable, right? Now there's like a real usage. So that kind of stuck in my craw as well. But like now I'm just so depressed and triggered by even the mere mention of <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, let me, we, we can, I've, I am a, sort of obsessed with the subject at this point. I mean, I've endlessly followed like Sam Bankman fried and the downfall of FTX and the, you know, what's going on with Binance. And I've, I have at this point, like dug deep oh. into all of it. Wait, to what you're saying, see, see, Kim K, Steph Curry, whoever these normal world stars are promoting crypto, yeah. I was like, whatever. Yeah. But Kevin O'Leary, is a business person who can understand this business stuff. Yeah. And I'm like, either you were promoting FTX with no understanding of what you were promoting, right. which goes to his entire credibility. Integrity, yeah. Or you knew and you were still willing to sell it, which goes to your entire integrity. But I'm not willing to let the celebrities off the hook like that. Like, I would never tell people to, especially when it comes to something as precious as like their personal finances, to invest in something that I don't really, that I don't believe in, that I don't understand. Like, you can't do that. That's disgusting. You know, that really is. I mean, some of these people are being sued, too, for um, promoting stuff that, you know, it was just total dog shit, ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about it. 
Here we go. <laughs> what were some of the other stories, Tori? One of the things that I wanted to get your view on, because we haven't like caught up on politics, we haven't caught up on culture. Like, What were some of the stories that you were kind of obsessed with or went deep on this year? For me, SBF was a big one. I dug a lot into the workings of the Federal Reserve this year, into the housing market this year. Those were some of the like big topics that I sort of, you know, became a little bit obsessed with among it's others. But amazing. what were some of the things that you were really into? It's it's amazing that like, how can I say this? <laughs> you look like a cheerleader, but you're a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> like you're so hot and you're like, I was all in this finance stuff. I was in the weeds and this. I mean, I'll never forget when it was all about, we have to find Thomas Piketty's book as fast as possible. <laughs> and I went to four different bookstores to find it. And I read it in one night and it was like, what? It's like, the <laughs> I haven't changed that much. I mean, no. people, I mean, I think most people know, but maybe people don't know that, um, you know, Tori and I go way back, even before. So we, the cycle started in what year? 2012 was when the cycle started. Yeah. Obama so. had won his second term. No, he, before. no, uh-uh. we were doing the show. So remember SE yeah, lost. Yeah. yeah. He wore the t-shirt. Was- she had to wear the t-shirt. So I think it started in 2012. Yeah. And uh, lasted, what, three, four years. So we were co-hosts together on the cycle. We were there from the beginning all the way through the run of the show. But we knew each other before that, too, because we would be on Dylan Radigan's show together every week um, on the mega panel. Mega panel. Yeah. And um, Dylan has ended up being one of the more prescient voices in finance and continues to be. You remind me of there was a time because Crystal's always a leader. Such a good lead. Is that true? Um, um, we were have. Who was it that was had been had been Sarah Palin's like foreign policy advisor? Oh, Nicole Wallace. No, no, it was a man. Oh, I don't know. Oh, yes. We were just yes, (laughs) and a guest could be tossed to the curb at any time, and we learned that just before. The segment that Sarah Palin's foreign policy advisor was get, uh, this some guy I can't remember who was was going to be the guest, and Crystal was like, "You like pulled me aside and was like, this guy basically this guy is horrible and evil. He helped he tried to help Sarah Palin become president. We should like fuck this segment. We should attack him." And and you were like, so <laughs> persuasive, and it was so righteous and so moral. Like, figure the television. Like, we can't be on TV with this person and just play nice. And we have to get him. And I'm like, all right, let's do it. I'll follow you into the line of fire. Like, let's go. <laughs> and you attacked him, like, professionally. But, like, you know, like, you helped Sarah Palin. That put America in danger. And he was like, whoa, not what I'm here to talk about, but, and he engaged you with a bullshit soundbite. And the host tried to change, it wasn't Dylan, it was some other, Matt. It was Matt Miller. He Matt was Miller. Poor, a poor, like, guest host, you know? It was just like, like a steward of the show for the day. Let's change the topic. And I was like, let's not. <laughs> and I went back in on the Sarah Palin thing. So when we get to, like, the when the break comes, Remember, our producer, Nick, comes in by ear. He's like, the boss wants to see you. <laughs> uh, yeah. the bo- And the boss 
was uh, Steve Friedman, who's this sort of like larger than life Large, television producer character. Epic television producer from the old school who knew everything. And you knew that he might scream at us. He might have us escorted out of the building. He might give us the tongue lashing of our lives. And we, I remember walking down the hallway. It seemed like a mile long to go to his office when we knew he was going to like. Oh, we were we were two little kids getting called into the principal's office. There was no doubt about it. Walking to the precinct, handcuffed, like you're going to be booked and have to make bail. Like, oh my god. Anyway, he was nice about it, and we continued to. <laughs> work together but the spirit yes. of that was crystal was like let's storm the capital and i'm like yeah let's do it <laughs> <laughs> you gotta pick your spots but i don't know that one i felt i and it's so funny that at the time it was like so important to me i can't even remember who this dude was i can't remember the details of what he had done that like particularly set me out. it wasn't just that he had worked with sarah Palin. there was something specific that i was like this is a horrible person we cannot just sit by and have some like nicey nice little conversation with him i'm not going to stand for it anyway <laughs> Um, you were asking me what what obsessed yeah what did you what obsessed you this year I mean I Book, think it's like, film story politics well a lot of things I think I probably yeah. spent a lot spent too much time talking about Kanye this year mm, um, I was kind of fascinated by that one as well actually I want to hear your I want to hear your view of it because for me it, uh, you're a you know longtime fan like yeah. still love his music I suspect do you like the more recent music or no I think less and less um, yeah. the recent albums have been less and interesting as time has gone on. Yeah. Um, I don't think I can sit around and listen to his music now. I mean, like mm. I've never seen anybody work so hard and diligently to destroy their public image. And yeah. I kept seeing people be like, he hasn't really done anything wrong. He hasn't really said anything wrong. And I found that really offensive um, I think a lot of people wanted to compare and say, well, black people had worse. So I'm like, what is, so what? That doesn't mean we can, we can or should be anti-Semitic. Like he was saying horrible anti-Semitic things. And, you so know. So you saw a lot of defending him, even after of, he went basically like yeah. full Hitler apologist. Yes, yes, yes. It's crazy. I mean, like, yeah. And like, you know, we've seen meltdowns like this, like one bad interview and then the person like goes off and like either quiet or they apologize or whatever. Yeah. This is like seven. And like on top of like the six or seven that we saw, like he said all that sort of racist shit to LeBron James and them and they just decided not to put it out. He yeah. said the same stuff to David Letterman in like 2018 and they just cut it out. So, I mean, like he's been saying this stuff for a long time. Do you um, think that those were the right choices to make i mean do you think he deserved that protection or do you think we would have been better if they had just like put that into the public square at the time you know it's interesting because part of putting it out is putting out is creating a lot of pain and a yeah. lot of heartache you know right. like it was this this was a difficult situation for me to deal with to watch him saying these horrific things and then have other hateful people feel validated and to, uh, now you could just say um kanye was right and that is a 
that that is a stand-in for all the anti-Semitic things, right? Mm. We're sort of normalizing anti-Semitism. Um, and I don't know if I was a media organization, I don't know that I would want, I mean, I, I am, I wouldn't want to be part of that. One of my, somebody on my team was like, maybe we should try to get Kanye for my podcast. And I don't think that Kanye would come do my podcast, but I don't want to be part of the group of people who are spreading those messages from him. Well, um, and there's also, I mean, the other part of it, and this doesn't excuse him like being a literal Nazi at this point, what? but there's obvious untreated mental illness here too. That yeah, is but I don't want to fueling this. I don't want to use that as an excuse for I him. I don't either, but either. it also is like, it's also like, what do you think you're going to get out of the ninth Kanye West needs to go on meds and is a Nazi now interview? Like, yeah. what do you, what do you think you're like putting into the public discourse that is going to be useful? That's like, okay, we get it. We see who he is. We see what's going on here. What further use can this possibly serve? I mean, and Kanye dovetailed with the Kyrie situation, which mm. was. Yeah, what do you think of that? Because that to me was a little bit, I mean, it was a little different. It was much more nuanced. Kanye is just full on anti-Semitism. We should rethink Hitler like. Ugh, like pro-Nazi, ridiculous, horrifying. Kyrie was almost like, like it's something we see more on the right wing, although being anti-Semitic is more of a right wing thing in general, but like that like plausible deniability dog whistle sort of thing, right? Like I didn't say, and like a lot of black people were like, he didn't say anything anti-Semitic. Well, no, Kyrie did not say anything anti-Semitic. But that film was horrifying. The film, I mean, like, you know, we, we don't have to sort of, like, go through the entire thing to see, like, it, it's quoting Hitler, it's, 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 it's questioning the Holocaust. I, I mean, like, what are you talking about? And no, it's not acceptable to spread these sort of messages. This is not a, I have a different opinion of this sort of thing. I mean, you know, could I imagine a scholar who's serious, who's saying like, well, you know, in the right context, if we look at these things, if we look, we can look at this film, like, like schools still read Mein Kampf, right? I think they mm. read it in a specific context, in a safe space, positing like this is wrong. Like, let's explore the descent into evil and yes. madness that this represents. Right. Not like maybe we should give the Nazis another think. Maybe they weren't right. so bad. Like, what? Um, what do you know. think I, about, I, do you think there's a responsibility on, um, like, people to stop listening to Kanye music or R. Kelly music or, you know, when an artist does a bad thing, should you morally stop listening to them or can you great, separate the the art from the artist? No, I think it's a great question. And I think we've dealt with this a, a lot over the last several years that life keeps giving us different challenges. And like, you know, somebody was this bad, would you still consume their art? I don't think that it's possible for me and for most people to just act like there's, there's the art is over here and the artist is over here. And, you know, I, I can consume this, while condemning that, like, like, you know, and they're, they pose different challenges, right? Like Bill Cosby, you know, raped 40, 50, 60, 70, some num women over four or five decades. Um, I can't 
have him come at me with that, like, I'm a sweet mm-hmm. grandfather, avuncular, mm-hmm. fatherly, paternal mm-hmm. figure who's super nice and lovely and wants to make you just laugh and have a good time. I'm like, no, like, I can't forget about that. Like, I can't listen to Kanye now rap and not think about him in a sock on Alex Jones, you know, (laughs) saying, you know, we're going to give the the Nazis another chance. I love Hitler, whatever he's right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, I guess the way I sort of feel about it is I don't think it's morally incumbent on people to stop engaging with the art, but it's the art is impacted by what the artists did. Like my experience of Kanye's music is not the same now as it was before. No. I mean, like, R. Kelly, like, yeah. I mean, like, the crime is horrific, right? I cannot watch a Woody Allen movie just Mm -hmm. without any judgment, without feeling away, right? Like, I can't listen to Michael Jackson's music without Mm -hmm. feeling away. Like, I am triggered. Um, I'm trying to think of somebody who did something lesser, who I was like, you know, I can forgive that. I mean, like... Like, more borderline. Yeah, I'm not sure... I'm not even sure, like, you know, if some, I, I, I mean, I don't even want to say like, well, that crime's not that bad, but like, obviously there are different levels of crimes, moral, legal crimes. And I'm not even dealing with the legality of it. I'm dealing with the morality of these different things. And if people do horrific, immoral behavior, then yeah, that affects my relationship to you as a fan. Um, I can't just consume your music just like, it's all good. Cause like, whatevs. Um, I can't do it. Um, yeah, it's it's just, it's not, it's too much. It's too much. I think it also depends somewhat on how connected the art is to the bad behavior or legal behavior or horrific behavior or whatever it is. So like, you know, you like Kyrie is a good example. Like he's an athlete. He's a type of artist, you know, sharing some like crazy movie, whatever thing, that's a big disconnect between whatever it is he's doing on the basketball court. So that's a little easier to separate than like, you know, the more extreme example would be Whoopi Goldberg in terms of connectivity. Not that what she said was like as extreme as what Kanye said, but she's a professional. She's a political commentator. Like that's her whole job. So then when you have (laughs) this thing hanging out there, you're like, well, this kind of calls into question the whole piece that you're putting out on air. I mean, I... I didn't, um, well, Kanye's, uh, Kyrie's a good example because I thought what Kanye said was horrific and unacceptable. Kyrie sends out this tweet, never made it clear if he actually watched the movie or not, right? I was, I remain like, I'm not really sure that he actually did. Maybe he did. Like him, I'm like, I can forgive you because I think your, your crime is only this bad. Right. right. Um, whereas I think that um, um, Kanye's crime was so bad that I'm like, I can't interact with your music anymore. Like everything yeah. is fine. Um, well, and R. Kelly's a good example too, because his music is very sexual in nature. And so then when you put that together with what his crimes were, like you don't hear the lyrics in the same way that you used to hear I mean, them. I'm, I'm not making, I, I'm not making that connection. I'm judging the moral quality of what you did. Mm. You know, Bill Cosby raped a million women. Um, 
let's say like Bill Cosby raped a million women. Dave Chappelle offended a lot of trans people. I can, I not obviously part of the LGBTQ community, but so it's a different moral plane for me, but I think I can say I'm, I'm willing to keep moving with him on that. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I think I understand where they are offended and I would never judge them for feeling that way. I saw in his jokes, somebody who's trying to figure out the world that he lives in, which has changed rapidly over the last 20 years to where trans people seem to be like a lot and we're adjusting to them and, you know, being normalized in society. And for a lot of people, um, it's a weird transition, right? Like I'm not saying they're weird, just the world seems different than it used to. Um, so and some people have a harder time than others dealing with that. Dave is having a harder time than others adjusting to that. And I think you see the confusion in the comedy, but especially in the last routine that was very controversial. He talked a lot about a specific person, a trans person who he embraced into his family of comedians and uh, treated her with respect and even as a, she as he was like, she was not a very good comedian, he still embraced her and talked to her and coached her up. And so I'm like, it, it didn't, to me, again, not having the same skin in the game as others have, it didn't come across to me as the hate speech that they seem to have heard it as. Mm. Now, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's complicated, but like, I was like, you know, I can I can still love Chappelle after watching him go through that in a way that like Kanye I can't and I'm not Jewish I mean I'm part Jewish but like that's like a biological sort of genealogical sort of quirk right like I don't know my I never knew the grandfather who was Jewish right like I didn't even know that was real in my life until about four years ago hmm. um, but I condemn what Kanye's doing and can't go back as a fan. Mm. Right. Chappelle, I'm like, Chappelle to me falls below. Like some people were offended. I respect that. But like, to me, that falls below the line of like, I can't mess with you anymore. You can keep consuming the comedy and take it for what it's worth. Yeah. With Kanye. I mean, first of all, one of like, one of the parts of it that was incredible to watch was to see like Alex Jones seem like a the reasonable person <laughs> and actually like sort of have to break character, you know, to deal Alex with what, what was happening. Him. He's trying then, to well, Right. He's throwing through Molly Sop. I was like, you just mean you like the uniforms, right? Like it's just the aesthetics. aesthetetically. You like that? He's like a guy. No, no, no. Right. I like him. <laughs> I, that's when he said, no, I love Hitler. It's like, you're not getting me off of this, Alex. No, I'm in. And then the other thing that was fascinating to watch was, um, you know, Alex and other sort of right wing figures who their audiences were like, no, we're with Kanye. And if you are disagreeing with him, like we're on his side. And so it's like, oh, just take a look at the type of audience that you have ultimately cultivated here. There's always going to be someone who's willing to go to that extra place that you're not willing to go. So that to me was very, was very revealing and, and sort of interesting to watch as well. Mm. Mm. What was your, 
Because you've been, we've been having you've been having the Kanye conversation for a while now, even before this latest Hitler iteration. Like, where was your kind of breaking point with Kanye? Was it this incident, yeah. or was no, it yeah. entirely this? Uh, you were able to get past that because he said something. What was he said about like black people chose slavery or some something? Yeah, slavery was that. a choice, yeah. and he was very MAGA. I mean, like I abandoned a lot of stuff around MAGA. I used to be a New York Jets fan. Um, what's like, uh, uh, um, hold on. Um, I used to be a, a New York Jets fan when, hold on, can we pause for one second? Yeah, we can pause, no problem. Uh, just edit this part out. Uh, hey, Henry, and we'll wrap out me, please. Hold on, you're muted, I think. I don't hear you. Got All it. right, go ahead. Yeah, so go. Be, just start with you. You left behind a lot of things with Mike or whatever. I left behind a lot of things. Hold on. Um, uh, I left behind a lot of things for MAGA. Like, I used to be a New York Jets fan until I found out how deep the owner of the New York Jets was. In with Trump, he became like an ambassador to like Ireland or something. I was like, mm. no, I can't. Like when he was like pro Romney, I was like, we can agree to disagree. But like pro Trump, I was like, no, no, I can't. No. Do it. <laughs> um, so other things. So you know, I just don't have a football team to root for at all. Right. So, you know, other things as well. But like um, um, the. Uh, oh God, like fucking. Uh, with you know, Kanye. Kanye. Hi, how are you? I'll be with you one second. Um, I'm sorry, this plumber is here to help me out. I thought we were going to be <laughs> able to go. Um, um, it's just with Kanye, I let it go because I was like, I still am interested in the music and the culture and what you might have to say. And I don't really appreciate you chumming up with Trump and, the, Trump and these sort of things. But like, and then when he started going anti-Semitic, I was like, no, no, no I can't do it. Yeah. That was it. Well, guys, the book is fantastic. You should definitely all check it out. It's it is and it is a fun and quick read as well. You'll breeze through it yeah. and really enjoy every minute of it. And it is always wonderful to catch up with you, my friends. Thank you. Thank you. All right, y'all. So that was Teray. That was interesting. Um he called you hot though, and I don't appreciate that. <laughs> You'll have to take it up with him. I'm next have time to we take talk it up to him. him. Yeah. I'll take it up with him at our wedding. Yeah. <laughs> hey, remember when you called my wife hot? Remember that? I'll be like, I do. She wasn't your wife then. Fiance. You like it. Like what? Teray finding you hot? <laughs> I'm not a cook. I don't want other men to be like drooling all over you. I mean, I know it happens, but <laughs> out of sight, out of mind. Anyway, it was a great interview. It was very interesting talking to him and getting his take on things. Yeah, so. definitely. The Dave Chappelle point was interesting. Very interesting. And I didn't necessarily expect him to have that commentary, like have that view of things. Yeah. I mean, look, Chappelle is, he's undeniably funny. And, you know, I think he just got lost a little bit in the culture war weeds and he's like stuck on this super boomer issue of trans Well, that's a, that's a problem. It's like, it's not that I'm like, I like Tori, I totally understand why people are like offended by the things that he's been saying. But the issue for me is more that it just made him a lot less funny. Yeah, I mean, but look, that's what happens when somebody gets really obsessed with one thing. As a comedian, you should be able, nothing held sacred, poke fun in every which direction, but also sort of 
keep the commentary fresh and new. Yeah. And like, yeah, if you get stuck on one thing, it's like, imagine a comedian from 1999 doing the exact same material today. It'd be like literally the worst shit you've ever seen in your life because culture and society and everything has changed so much since 1999. It's just not going to be as current as uh, intuitive and interesting. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I wonder if he's reacting to the fact that he got so much cultural backlash to it. He almost has the instinct of that makes him feel like this is like the edgy, funny place to, to, to be. And that like causes him to sort of stick on it when he should just move along. I think that's right. I think when some certain types of people, when they see pushback over an issue, they're like, no, no, I need to explain myself better. I need to like get out there and do it again and make it funnier or whatever. Well, he's also got a mischievous streak of like, oh, I touched a nerve. That makes me want to touch that nerve again and again and again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a a very interesting uh, case study. Because again, I think he's undeniably one of the greatest ever at what he does, but it's like, this one issue, it's like, he can't get over it. And also, I, I, the other issue is I think there's a way to talk about trans issues without taking the path he took. You know what I mean? Like, it could be funny. You could still make funny jokes without it being feeling as sort of mean-spirited, I guess. You know? Agreed. Yeah. So, Agreed. anyway. Uh, but I don't want to ruin our chances of getting Dave Chappelle on KKF, so I'm going to shut up. We'd, we'd love to talk to you, Dave. <laughs> All right, guys. We love you. We'll talk to you.